Well, for us, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. My name's Matt Baker. I am one of the pastor elders here at Antioch. Uh, typically, if you're here, you will hear uh, from Pastor Tyler, who did our opening uh, and welcome this morning. But uh, this morning, I have the privilege of preaching from God's Word in the book of Ephesians as we continue our study through it. So Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 6b. That just means the second part of the verse all the way through verse 12. If you grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, that is page 917, I believe. Page 917. So in just a moment, we will read uh, from Ephesians chapter 1 together. In the early 2000s, a, a new trend of the simple aesthetic began to gain popularity. Google intentionally presented its search engine page with no ads and just a solid white background. In those years as well, Apple first introduced its iPod, remember those before the iPhone, uh, introduced its iPod, and it was centered on its seamless design with minimal buttons and a plain, simple color offering. Eventually, the iPhone itself would follow in the same path. Simple, neat, and decluttered interior home design followed as well. And so there in this time, there was even, from one of our major evangelical publishing houses, a book published that was entitled Simple Church, with a cover that looked somewhat like a combination of iPad and Google together. Simple was clearly in vogue. But what would you say if I was to say, God is simple? Does that sit right with you? Sometimes we may think, because we would use in our own culture, you're simple as not accommodation, right? Not as a compliment, but rather as an insult. Yet the attributes of divine simplicity has long been affirmed by Christians as true and good. And it's important for us to understand this. We can understand this because we would say duplicity, or to be duplicitous, is wrong or bad, right? To be double-minded, double-tongued, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. And so throughout church history, the church has affirmed what we would understand as divine simplicity. We could do a simple, quick, historical theology of it. And historical theology is just a study of theology throughout church history. We could go back to Irenaeus, I think we have some of these quotes to put for you on the screen. But he said, He, being God, is simple, uncompounded being, without diverse members. He was an early church father. If you go to the 17th century, theologian Stephen Charnock, he says, Where there is the greatest simplicity, there is the greatest unity. And where there is the greatest unity, there is the greatest power. And then you can go to theologian of yesteryear, A.W. Tozer, who said, all of God does all that God does. This is the simplest definition of it for you to grasp and, and get to. This is exactly what we're seeing in Ephesians 1. In this great doxology that Paul is putting forth to us, he is showing us that all of God, Father, Son, Spirit, does all that God does. And what we would affirm 
as a glorious truth of divine simplicity. Why is this truth so important? Well, it's important even in our own day because doctrinal deviations have been popularized, such as the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. This is simply untrue and a misunderstanding of Scripture. This follows in the steps that is really not a new heresy. Marcion said it in the early church. Harry Emerson Fosdick said it in the early 1900s, and it continues to our day with even those in evangelical circles picking up on similar thoughts. The idea that was popularized in the early and late, I mean, in the late 1900s, seeking to come against the thought of penal substitutionary atonement, saying that it was something akin to divine child abuse. Friends, this is simply out of step with Scripture. Scripture tells us clearly, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And Galatians 2.20 says that Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. Jesus said in John 10, no one takes my life for me, but I lay it down. And so over and over in Scripture, we see this great truth of divine simplicity that all of God does all that God does. And so in this great doxology of Ephesians that we're looking at in verses 3 through 14, this long sentence in the Greek where the Lord is making clear through the Apostle Paul, he is showing us that redemption is planned by the Father, that it's accomplished by the Son and applied by the Holy Spirit. There is no division or duplicity in God. All of God does all that he does for his great glory and our everlasting good. And brothers and sisters, friends, that is good news for us today. As we approach this passage, we understand that we are in the high mountains of God's glory. The air can be a little thin up here, but the views are well worth it. As we stand and we gaze upon his beauty and his glory, upon these truths, that we are now privileged to look into a little deeper. And so with that in mind, let's turn our attention to God's word and let's read in verse 6 through verse 12. Let me begin with verse 6 in its entirety. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it and give fruit not only to the hearing of it, but may it take root in our hearts and we live in light of it, doing it as well. Brothers and sisters, we are looking now this morning specifically at redemption accomplished by the Son. So last week we saw that it is planned by the Father, that the Father has planned redemption before the foundations of the world, and he will accomplish this redemption through Jesus Christ, his Son. And so this morning my outline is very simple for you. 
It is simply verse 6b. I can't see it. Oh, it's not up there. It's right here, though, on my iPad. Verse 6b is what? We're simply looking at what? 7 through 11, how? And then verse 12, why? Right? What the what of this redemption accomplished, the how of it, and then the why of it as well. All right? Well, brothers and sisters, let's look back at verse 6b. And so what do we see here? We see that with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you're looking at the ESV, you notice that they have beloved and as capitalized. He's speaking of Christ, that we are in Christ Jesus. And so what you saw before this is you see that he has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, right? And so now we are in Christ, in the beloved. So adopted, orphans of our own doing, we now have a home and we have a father. And not only that, that we have been adopted, but we are blessed. See, in and of ourselves, we are under the curse that our first parents brought upon them through their rebellion against God as a benevolent and creating God. Yet through that rebellion, we have joined in with them, and we deserve that curse as well. But those who have earned and merited curse now find themselves blessed. And not only that, we see that we have been adopted and that we have been blessed, and now we are in the beloved, which means we are loved. We are loved. Martin Luther, in his great Heidelberg Disputation, in 1518, he wrote several theses. Now, many of you are familiar with the 95 thesis that he nailed to Castle Door Church at Wittenberg, but here, in one year later, in 1518, he wrote the Heidelberg Disputation. In thesis 28, Luther wrote this, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. <laughs> and then he contrasts it, as opposed to human love. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. We see something, we delight in it, we love it. God looks out and says, I will create that which is truly lovely. Friends, that is us. God has not looked at us and said they are lovely. God has looked at us and said they are in need of a Savior and in need of redemption. And he says, I will make them lovely in Christ Jesus. And so here what we're seeing in this passage is we're seeing that, that we who were orphans have been adopted, that we who were under curse have been blessed, and that we who were completely unlovely have been loved in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly where our attention needs to go because everything that we have said and everything that we'll continue to say as we move forward is rooted in this great truth that all of this is grounded in Christ Jesus. Amen. Tyler has talked about it. You see on the main side at times of the sermon series, union with Christ, union with, church, with the church. Friends, we have, by faith, been united to Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30-31, Paul says it another way. He says, and because of him, that's God the Father in the passage and context, you are now in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is all because of him. It is all because of him. We have to understand as Christians that Christ is our grounding, that Christ is the reason for all that we have. 
As one theologian said it another way, we can think about the glorious things that we receive through Christ Jesus, but ultimately it is Christ who is the gift to us, and everything else flows as a result of you and I being found in Christ Jesus through our union with him. Friends, we see this shorthand all throughout Scripture. You see it so much here in the book of Ephesians. In Him, in Christ, in the Beloved. Every time Paul is saying that, he's using shorthand for the reality that we are in Christ Jesus. Yet this is not just limited to Paul because we see that the Apostle John does the same thing. He says in recording Jesus' teachings in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the New Testament is shot through with this glorious truth that you and I must be in Christ Jesus, united to him by faith, and it is through our union with him that we receive blessing, love, adoption, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of these glorious things are because of him. Now, friends, I think the best way that I can illustrate this is to tell a story. When I was in college, and some of you have heard this story, but when I was in college, I broke my finger my freshman year in college. So I I have a crippled finger. I can't straighten it more than that. It shows up at times, and people think, what's wrong with his hand? There's four screws in it. They told me if I didn't have surgery, I wouldn't be able to straighten it out. Well, they were wrong. I had the surgery, and I still can't straighten it out. But after that surgery, I had a cast put on from my fingertips to my elbow. And so... um, At the same time, I have an 8 a.m. PE class. Now, if you remember college, any 8 a.m. class you avoided. No one wanted the 8 a.m. class, but I had an 8 a.m. PE class. My roommate did not have the 8 a.m. PE class. And so I would get up in the mornings and I would say, hey, Chad, that's his name. And I said, hey, will you you tie my shoes? Because I couldn't tie my shoes. And he wouldn't get out of bed to tie my shoes. So I had to wear my shoes untied. I'd walk all the way down the hill because I had tennis for PE to the tennis courts. And the coach, Coach Trueheart, she's a lovely person because she would tie my shoes for me, right? And then I would try to hold the tennis ball and cradle it in that cast, throw it up and hit it over the net, right? And take part in this PE class. Well, At the end of the semester, we had a singles and a doubles tennis tournament. And if you won the singles or the doubles tennis tournament, you didn't have to take the final exam. And the final exam was not something you wanted to take. It was all of the rules of tennis. And if you're a tennis player, I'm not trying to be insulting to you, but I didn't care anything about knowing all the rules of tennis, right? The length of the court, the widths, all of these things, we had to know all these uh, particulars. And so I thought, well, I'm out. I better go ahead and start studying now because I'm clearly not going to win with a cast on my hand. But in the doubles tournament, Coach Treehart, I think intentionally, paired me up with a girl named Alex, who was the best tennis player in the class, who had played tennis all of her life. And when we would get up to the doubles and we would start, she would serve and she would say, Matt, get out of the way. (laughs) I would just kneel down behind the net sometimes. (laughs) And she single-handedly beat the entire class. And we, we, she, we won the doubles tournament. And I didn't have to take the final exam. Brothers and sisters, our union with Christ is so much better than that. He does it all, and we get credit for it. 
He does everything that is necessary for our salvation so that we can get the blessings of justification, glorification, sanctification, adoption, all of these blessing, love, all of those things come to us because Christ Jesus has done it all for us. Friends, we have to recognize this. In Scripture, we have to recognize this truth. We, we, we need to allow Scripture to instruct us here to shape and to mold our minds and our hearts so that we would understand this. We can press this a little further. Even in this very book of Ephesians, as we move to chapter 5, the Apostle Paul will talk about marriage. And there in marriage, he tells us that it is because of Christ and the church, this mystery. If you go and read and we study there a little bit later on as he's talking about it, what he's telling us is that marriage is a signpost to Christ in the church. Friends, this is so important. We're tempted to read that, that passage and we think, oh, I, I get it. My, my, my marriage and earthly marriage, that's kind of the real thing. And, uh, and Christ the church is like that. No, 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 no. Your marriage, my marriage... Any marriage that you've witnessed, it's a real marriage, right? It's real. It was real at my house this week with back pain and busy schedules, right? It was real all week long. It was real. It's a real thing. It's a real reality. But what Paul is saying there is, you know how your marriage is real? Christ and the church is even a greater reality than that. Because your marriage is a signpost pointing to what is greater that is to come and that is a reality of us being with Christ Jesus. And just as a man and a woman are united, Christ and the church are even more so united together. And we are in union with him. The greater reality is Christ and the church. This is why earthly marriage is never supposed to separate. Why? Because Christ and the church will never separate. And it will be forever more. Brothers and sisters, if you don't understand what I'm saying yet, simply tell your kids you'll take them to Disney World, drive down to Tifton, Georgia, when you see the first billboard for Disney World, and say, all right, kids, we're here. They'll set your car on fire. <laughs> we are not here. This is a sign pointing to Disney World. They don't want the sign. They want the reality, right? Marriage is a sign, and it's a beautiful, glorious sign pointing to a far more beautiful and glorious reality of Christ in the church. Brothers and sisters, we have been united to Christ. Now, I have to admit that this sermon, what we're doing is spending a lot of time on this first point, but we've got to lay the foundation. We've got to move some dirt and lay the foundation, and then we can begin to frame it up quicker. That's just my poetic way of saying I promise every point won't be this long. <laughs> Let me give you three things of application to help drive this home. All right? To reflect on, our, our, on the realities of our union with Christ. Think about it in light, and we could spend weeks on this, but think about it in light of your justification. Think about it in light of your justification. When you're tempted to think, that you are too far gone for God to forgive you. That you have just gone too far this time. You've messed up too many times this week. Maybe you're tempted to think, 
I just need to clean up a little bit, and then God can forgive me. Maybe if I have a couple days that are better than the last three days, then God will be more likely to forgive me. Those are all an insult to the cross, by the way. Remember your union with Christ. When you're tempted to think that. Let's quote from Martin Luther again. Luther understood this well as being plagued by doubt, thinking that he would never be able to appease the wrath of God. He was right. He can't. When he finally understood that righteousness comes by faith in what Christ has done, this is the counsel that he would give to those around him. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. I'm united to Christ. I am clothed in Christ. The Lord sees me in Christ. And that is good news. Because he's the rock of ages, cleft for us, in which we stand. And where is he? Luther said, where he is, there I, may shall, there I shall be also. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians 2, verse 6 tells you this. Quickly look over there. Raised us up with him, being Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's amazing. We are in God's presence in Christ Jesus. How does this impact your prayer life? Friends, we, we tend to think that when there's a big prayer request, you know the weighty ones, I better get somebody with a direct line to, to pray for me, right? I better get somebody godly to pray for me. Maybe the Lord will hear. In Christ Jesus, you have the Father's ear. You're sitting at his right hand. You can be no closer to God the Father than through and in Christ Jesus. What a glorious truth this is. In politics, we think about our man on the hill, right? I don't know that we have any men or women on the hill anymore who are representing us, but, but we won't talk about politics, right? Theologically, we have our man in heaven. Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, who speaks a better word for us. Think about it in light of your sanctification. Think about it in light of your sanctification, that, that when you are tempted by that besetting sin, and you're tempted to resign yourself, and you're like, this is just the way I am. This is just who I am. I, I, can't, I can't change. I, I give up. I just resign myself to this. It plagues me, it besets me, it's suffering, is it not, friend? But in light of your union with Christ, you can confidently say, that's not who I am anymore. Because I have been made new in Christ Jesus. And I can pursue, by his grace, the reality of who he's declared me to be. And we'll get into that in detail in the second half of Ephesians. But friends, us being rooted and grounded and us recognizing the grand reality that we have been united to Christ Jesus is absolutely important 
for us to understand the glories of what the Apostle Paul is extolling here in Scripture. It is not of us, as he will say later, but it is solely because of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. So now let's think a little bit about how. And I'm not naive to the reality that a lot of the rest of this book is going to tell us how this is playing out and how this has been accomplished. But let's look exactly at how, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says it here. Look at what he says. Once again, in him, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 7. Three things I want to point out to you there. Riches, I mean redemption, forgiveness, and riches. Redemption. The whole whole term theologically, biblically, the way it's used, the, the, the little reality of the term is to redeem something back to its original purpose, to redeem something back. And so often one way we can think about it uh, in in biblical and theological terms, the way it's used, is think about someone who, especially in biblical times, there was no bankruptcy. So if you lost your, lost everything in a business deal. If you weren't great at that and you'd borrowed some money, you couldn't file bankruptcy, but you'd be put in debtor's prison or debtor's enslavement. And what you'd have to do is you'd have to work and work that time back off and pay that debt back. You're a prisoner to that debt. But if you had a wealthy relative or friend who could come along and say, you know what, Matt's a terrible businessman. But I do like him. He's a good cousin. I'm going to buy him out of slavery. They would be redeeming that person. Pay the debt and restore them to their rightful and original place prior to being placed in this enslavement and this debtor's prison. Now, brothers and sisters, it's the same concept that's being used here that the Apostle Paul is showing us that, that we have been under captivity, right? Enslaved to sin and a death that awaits us. And, this, and Satan stands over us as the accuser, accusing us day and night. And there's only one way that that accusation can be overcome, right? Revelation chapter 12. According to the word of the testimony through Christ Jesus who died for them. And so here we see that Paul is saying, we have been redeemed. We were enslaved. We were in prison, sin and death. But God, through Christ Jesus, has redeemed us. And how has he redeemed us? He's redeemed us through his blood, providing for us the forgiveness of sins. See, it wasn't money that was needed to redeem us. But it was the very life of Christ Jesus that was required to redeem us. As he came and lived the perfect life, never sinned, yet went to the cross. The wages of sin is death. He didn't deserve death, but he took not only death, but death of exhausting the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could be redeemed. Why? Because we have sinned against this holy God. We have sinned against him. We have rebelled against him. And he's holy and just and right. And he will not overlook or turn a blind eye to sin. It must be addressed. It must be dealt with. And it is only through Christ Jesus through which sin can be atoned for. 
Think about it in this way. If we think about redemption and we think about what the Lord has provided for us in Christ Jesus, think back to the Old Testament. Think back to Moses and Israel in the wilderness. Do you remember the provision that God made for them? And the tabernacle. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? The tabernacle was so that God's presence could be among his people, right? So that God's presence could be among his people. Now, if you remember, if you were to enter into that tabernacle uh, courtyard, as you entered in through the gate, you would see on the other side the tent of meeting, right? And that was the, the representation of the manifestation of God's presence among his people, where God manifests his presence, especially uniquely among his people. And so they would see the tent of meeting, and they would be reminded that God is with us. Yet there was something between that tent of meeting and them as they entered into that courtyard. Do you, do you remember what it was? It was the altar. Remember the altar? Now think with me for a moment, friends. Use your imagination. Place yourself there because this would have been a completely full sensory experience for them. As they walk in and they see the tent of meeting, but between them and the tent of meeting is the altar. And the whole purpose for the altar was so that sin could be atoned for. And so immediately the reminder is, there is something between me and the Lord and it is my sin and my rebellion. And, and as they looked, they would see, they would smell, because you know what was on the altar was the sacrifice that was burning. And they would hear those sacrifices being made. And they would see that mirage of heat coming up and distorting the tent of meeting. And they would be reminded, I should be there dying for my sin, yet something is in my place dying as a substitute for me. So that I can be in the presence of the Lord. And all of this pointed forward, as Hebrews makes so clear, for the blood of bulls and goats does not atone for sin. But it points to the one true and better sacrifice that laid down his life for us once and for all. So that it, it is finished in Christ Jesus. Friends, all of that is a sign and a shadow pointing to the substance and the reality of the cross where Christ would go and lay down his life and exhaust the wrath of God for any who would look to him in faith and repentance. Now this morning, you may be very familiar with that story. You may never have heard this good news. Either way, if you have never recognized your sin before a holy God, and recognize that you deserve his death, death and judgment from him, and have seen that there is only one way to be saved, and it is through Jesus Christ, which he has provided. The greatest thing for you to do this morning is to repent, turn from your life of sin and rebellion, and believe and cling to Christ Jesus, who laid down his life for you. Why? Brothers and sisters, we have no other hope except for Christ Jesus. He will not justify your life through moral living. You'll never be good enough. You'll not justify your life through accolades and accomplishments and bank accounts. It'll never be enough. When you get to the end, you will stand exposed before the Lord. Or you can get to the end and you can stand clothed in Christ in his righteousness. You may say, I don't like that. 
Friend, it's reality and the truth. This God has created us. He lays claim on us. We must answer to him. The scripture is clear. It is appointed once for a person to die, and after that judgment, we will all stand before the Lord to give an account. And we can stand exposed and empty-handed, or we can stand clothed in the riches of Christ Jesus. And that's exactly where Paul goes from here. In the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now think about that. Think about if somebody took you out today for a really nice meal for lunch. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Now, how would you feel if you knew at the end of that meal when they paid for it, they just bankrupted themselves? I hope you'd feel bad about that. I hope you'd feel like, oh, man, I, I didn't mean for you to do that. But, but look, at, look at what Scripture's telling us here. That this is through and according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. To the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. The Presbyterian minister of the 1800s, Charles Hodge, and theologian wrote this. He said of this verse, it is the overflowing abundance of unmerited love. Think about that. Overflowing abundance, there's plenty of it, unmerited, we didn't deserve it or earn it, love. Inexhaustible in God and freely accessible through Christ. The overflowing abundance of unmerited love that we didn't deserve is inexhaustible in God and freely accessible through Christ. This is good news. Inexhaustible. It's what your kids seem like in the middle of the day, right? Inexhaustible when they have unbounding energy. But eventually it runs out and they crash, I hope at night and sleep well, right? Inexhaustible, cannot be exhausted and freely accessible through Christ Jesus. This is the riches that God has lavished upon us in Christ. And that term unmerited is so important. Look at what he says, what he says next, verse 8b. In all wisdom and insight, Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, friends, if you have taken Tyler up on his challenge to you to read through the book of Ephesians every week as we go through this study, then hopefully you've seen some parallels and you've seen some terms repeated. You'll see these phrases repeated in Ephesians chapter uh, 3. I was about to say 6. It's 3 verse 6. And so you see uh, the Apostle Paul talk of these things, these same realities and he'll fill it out more of exactly what he means here over in chapter uh, 3, verse 6. But let me ask you this. In your own life, in your own life, have you ever had a plan go wrong because of your own short-sightedness? You ever had a plan go wrong because of your own short-sightedness? I mean, something just completely fall apart, right? 
One year we were going on vacation and we would always try to take our bikes. I, I enjoy cycling. I don't do it anymore on the road because I want to live. But, uh, but I, so I just do it in the garage. But back then, we take the bike and I, you have to, I had to have a special kind of shoe to ride my bike. And I forgot those shoes. And I get to the beach. I've got the bike. I've got the helmet. My legs are still working, but I don't have the shoes, right? I, I cannot ride without those shoes. Uh, well, friends, we can all think of examples of where things have just gone wrong because of our short-sightedness, our, our, our best-laid plans. Can I tell you the good news? God has never had that experience. His wisdom and his understanding are infinite. There's no situation room in heaven. There's no, hey, could somebody get me some projections on this and let's, let's see how this might play out? Because his insight and his wisdom is infinite. Brian Chappell says it this way, in his wisdom he knows more about the nature and horror of my trespasses than I do. He knows more about the nature and horror of my trespasses, of your sin, my sin, than we ourselves even know. That, that's reassuring, by the way. Because we don't have to worry about there coming a point when the Lord's, oh, I, I didn't know that about you. This deal's off. That's never going to happen. Because he knows more about us than we ourselves know. Chapel continues, and he is wise enough to know what will be needed to compensate for my wrong, the blood of his own son to cancel my debt. And so this is the great and glorious redemption that's planned by the Father and accomplished by Christ the Son. Verse 9, he's making known to us the mystery of his will. You can look at Chapter 3, verse 6, real quick. I'll just, easiest way for me to explain this to you is just to read it here. Chapter 3, verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That at the right time, right? Galatians 4, God sent his son to bring the fullness of his plan to fruition in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul moves in verse 10. So he makes known, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now that word plan, administration, it, it could be translated, the Greek term there could be translated as household order, household order. L let, me, let me put it to you this way, because a lot of you who are my age and older uh, will remember a class in school, right? Home economics. Remember that? Right now, economics, we just think it's about money, but, but it's about order and rhythm, right? And so home economics, this is what, what it was all about, the household. And so, so really, this, this Greek word is, is similar of, of household order, home economics, and what we're seeing here in the passage is that the Lord, in the plan of the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
Friends, we recognize that, that through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, which we've all joined part in, that things are not as they are supposed to be. We see this. We see this in, in the horrible wildfires there in Hawaii. We see this in the, the hurricane that hit the southwestern United States, right? Hurricanes that come our way. We can see natural disasters. We can see that things are not in rhythm and in harmony. And even more than that, we see it in our own community when we read the news every day and we see headline after headline of brokenness and disaster and hate and harm inflicted on others, do we not? And we see this in our own hearts where we ourselves are conflicted and we know what we ought to do and we don't do what we ought to do and we don't want to be selfish, but we, we fall back into selfishness and on and on. We can see that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Yet God in Christ Jesus is not just redeeming you and I out of this broken world, but he is going to heal the entire broken world and set all things right in Christ Jesus. Now what this passage does not mean is not some sort of universalism that everyone will be saved in the end. It is clear that there will be those who will stand in rebellion against God and his son throughout the entire time. But ultimately there will be a day when even through curse in their breath they will have to bow because they can do nothing but confess, yep, he's Lord and there's nothing I can do about it. And for the rest who are in Christ Jesus, we will do it with glory and with blessing on our tongues to the Lamb who was slain, be glory and honor and power and might throughout all eternity because he is the one who has come to make all things new and set all things right that have gone so wrong through our rebellion. Benjamin Glad and G.K. Bill said it this way, God's cosmic household had fallen into disorder and become Weaken, I mean, become wrecked and fragmented. Christ came as the household manager to put God's cosmic household back into order. Harmony that had been lost through the fall of humanity. Isn't that a good thing? I mean, we can think about this, right? Have, have you ever had someone come and just put things into order for you? And you're like, oh, wow. Everything just works so much better now. Kind of like when my wife's gone for the weekend. I'm like, hey, hurry up, everybody. Let's clean up these dishes and get them out of the sink. And when she's there and she sets things in order in the home, everything just goes smoother. And there's rhythm and harmony to it. It's hard to fill up the coffee pot when it's piled with dishes. You can't even get it under the faucet. You know what I'm saying? Right? Just those simple things where we see there's no rhythm. There's no, there's no harmony here. If we can recognize it in the smallest of things, like trying to fill the coffee pot, brothers and sisters, imagine it on a cosmic scale of things being set right. And we're like, ah, that's the way it's supposed to be. We have a glimpse of that now through salvation. But brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when we will know the full glory of that. There will be no more bad news reports. It will just be to the praise of his glorious grace throughout all eternity. We long for that day. And see, it is for that that God has made this rich inheritance, verse 11. In him we have attained an inheritance. You can look, read commentaries, theologians, there's some debate here. Is this inheritance that we have in Christ? Is this God's inheritance of us? 
they're all smarter than me. I read, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And I read somebody else, yeah, that sounds good. So I just, I just do probably what they would say you shouldn't do. It's both and. Can we have it both ways? We have this rich inheritance in Christ Jesus. We've been talking about it the whole time. At the same time, we are, as the redeemed, God's boast. Where he says, look at what I can do. Trophies of grace. Children who were once enemies and rebels who have now found redemption in Christ Jesus, who are mine and who belong to me. The Apostle Paul says here, repeating, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ, Paul's talking of those first ones to to believe in the gospel, to the praise of his glory. Now don't worry, because he's going to turn very next week and go, now you, you who believe, Right? But here Paul is talking about the beginnings of this boast of the fruit of the gospel in Christ Jesus. So what have we seen? We've seen the what of our union with Christ. We've seen the how and what he's done to accomplish this and secure these blessings for us through him who is the gift. And then we see in verse 12, why? All to the praise of his glorious grace. All For his glory. He's done it all. All of God does all that God does. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've worked this wonderful plan of redemption. All credit and glory goes to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to confirm in our hearts, to build up our faith. Father, we pray that you would use it to accomplish your purposes of salvation. Even in this room this morning, there are those who have not trusted you, whether they're very familiar with your word and the things of you, or this is the first time they've ever encountered. Either way, Father, if they don't know you, through the power of your spirit, draw them to yourself. And may they place their faith and repentance in Christ. Lord, we pray for the believers that we'd be built up These realities of our union with Christ, even this week, would impact the thinking of our justification that we have in Christ, our own prayer lives. And Father, our our sanctification is we have been declared righteous in Christ, and we've been set apart for you, but Lord, we are progressively becoming more and more like Christ. May this rich truth of union with Christ drive that, as we are reminded, we are new in Christ. We are not who we once were. And we are not yet who we will be. And Lord, it is to that day that we set our eyes, the day in which you return, and we will be glorified. And all things will be set right once and for all. Set our hearts on that hope. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.